Today I'm speaking with David Benatar. David is a professor of philosophy at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He's the author of a few books, Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence, and most recently, The Human Predicament, A Candid Guide to Life's Biggest Questions. And he's a philosopher who many of you have wanted me to speak with. I've been getting emails and tweets about him for quite some time. He is perhaps the most prominent exponent of a philosophy called antinatalism, and you will hear much more about that in today's episode. The question for David really is whether or not existence is worth the trouble, and he answers that question with an emphatic no, and this makes for an interesting conversation. As you'll hear, there are a couple of places where our intuitions diverge, and I think you just have to pick which intuition you find most compelling there. But we talk about many interesting things. We talk about the asymmetry between the good and bad things in life, the ethics of existential risk, the difference between starting and continuing a life. He sees those as very different. Our built-in bias towards existence and how that may confuse us. The relationship between antinatalism and another position called pro-mortalism, the idea that it would be a good thing if we all died in our sleep tonight. I talk for a few minutes about my notion of the moral landscape, and we also talk about the, the limits and paradoxes of introspection, how viewing your life in a certain way can actually change what there is to notice about your life. And there are many other topics here. Population ethics is a very rich conversation for those of you who like moral philosophy, and it got me to realize at least one thing that resolves for me at least one of the troubling paradoxes in Derek Parfit's philosophy. So I found it a very valuable conversation, and I hope you do as well. And now I bring you David Benatar. I'm here with David Benatar. David, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be with you. So uh, I've been hearing about you for at least a year. Um, I plead uh, unfamiliarity with your your books, but people have been emailing me about you. Uh, I think they have uh, read some of your articles, and and some undoubtedly have read your books. But you have been laying out a philosophy that is quite novel and quite pessimistic, and uh, quite interesting. It really strikes to the very core of the question. Is life worth living? And your answer to that is a resounding no, at least for those who don't yet exist. And no doubt, most of what is interesting in moral philosophy can be brought to bear on this question. Before we we dive into your philosophy, give us just a kind of a potted history of your of what you've been doing intellectually and the, and the kinds of questions you've you've focused on. Well, this is one question that I've sort of revisited on multiple occasions and uh, also examined issues related to it. I suppose my broad interests are in uh, moral philosophy, uh, more specifically in uh, practical ethical questions. Uh, but often when I look at the practical ethical questions, I'm interested in the theoretical issues that, that lie behind them. And I suppose in this area of procreative ethics, those two come together quite well. Uh, but I have written about other topics as well. Uh, another book that I wrote is called The Second Sexism, which is about discrimination against men and boys. And then I've written on a, a range of, of practical ethical questions. And you're currently a professor of philosophy, 
That's correct in Cape Town. So let's just jump in because this is this really is fascinating. You describe your view as antinatalism. Is that a coinage from you or, or did that view exist before you started working in this area? I've been asked that question and quite frankly, I don't know the answer whether I coined the term or whether I heard it somewhere. I've tried to do some sort of intellectual archaeology to find out whether I did hear it from somewhere else and I've been unsuccessful. But the idea itself, uh, I think, dates back to much earlier times. One hears it even in ancient times, the idea that it would have been better never to have been born. And a more more recent exponent, of course, was Arthur Schopenhauer. So uh, these ideas have been around for a long time, and that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. It's interesting. You're, there's a, quite a convergence between your view and Buddhism. I'm sure someone must have pointed that out to you at, at some point. Yes, exactly. They have. Perhaps we'll touch on that because I have a longstanding interest in Buddhism and, and related practices like meditation. So just lay out the argument for antinatalism. Make, make, make the case for us at the outset here. Well, perhaps I should clarify what the view is first. So it's the view that we ought not to bring new people into existence, but I think the view is broader that we ought not to bring new sentient beings into existence. Right. So it's not just the view that it's harmful to come into existence, but a, a further view that it's also uh, wrong to, to bring beings into existence. And I think there are a range of arguments for this position. Some of them I characterize as philanthropic arguments, and uh, others I think are misanthropic arguments. And here, of course, I'm restricting the scope to bringing human beings into existence, although I think that parallel points might be able to be made about, about uh, other sentient beings. The original arguments that are advanced are the philanthropic ones. And those really are concerned about the being that you'll bring into existence. And my view is not only that it's always a harm for that being, but that it's also a very serious harm. And given the seriousness of that harm, I think that it's always going to be wrong to create a new being. Uh, More recently, I've developed some misanthropic arguments. And uh, those have to do with the harm that the being you're bringing to existence will do to others. And by others, I mean other human beings, but also other sentient beings on the planet. And so those are two broad kinds of argument. And I, although they, one's philanthropic and the other is misanthropic, I don't think that these two are incompatible with one another. So just to revisit a few of those utterances, lest they blow by and their significance be lost on, on some of the audience here. So one of the consequences of your view is that it really is a a monstrous crime to have children. At a minimum, it's a colossal act of negligence on the part of people who haven't really thought about these issues clearly enough. And I mean, it's really, it's, it's kind of analogous on your view to ushering souls into hell because existence is either that bad or there's a high enough probability that it will be that bad that it's just it's just irresponsible to consign people to the to the fate of of existing. That's correct. Of course, hell comes in degrees. So as bad as it is, it can always be worse. And so we need to be careful about that analogy of ushering somebody into hell. But it's a kind of hell. I love this topic, and I think this will be fun to to get into the details here and hear some more of your your specific arguments. But what has been your experience promulgating this? idea or set of ideas. I can imagine the thesis provokes anger in some people. That's for sure. A lot of angry people. Uh, Fortunately, not too many of those have made direct contact with me, Uh, but one does see a lot of um, 
hate mail of, of a certain kind and of course a lot of, a lot of hate comments on the web. Uh, but the people who've contacted me tend to be those who have uh, been more sympathetic to my views. And one very ki common kind of response I've received is from people who've had these sorts of thoughts and felt that they were entirely alone in the world. They thought that they were the only people who, who thought this, and they've drawn a measure of comfort from knowing that there are others who shared that idea. One distinction to make here is between pessimism of the sort that you're expressing and nihilism. Your, your, your view really isn't nihilistic. Do you want to tease those apart? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Many people, I think, mischaracterize the position as a nihilistic position. Uh, and I, I'm not a nihilist. I, I think that suffering, for example, is bad. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's wrong to bring new beings into existence, because they're going to suffer, and they're going to suffer pretty unspeakably. Nihilism here would be that basically nothing matters, right? In, in, the, in the scheme of things, good and bad are just things we make up, and the universe doesn't care about us. And therefore, it doesn't really matter if conscious minds get ground up in some inferno interminably. That's not your view at all. You want to avoid the inferno and you want to avoid committing the moral wrong of consigning people to it. That's exactly right. Uh, look, I, I am a nihilist of some kind. So if you ask me about whether our lives have cosmic meaning, I'm a nihilist about that. I don't think that they do. But I just don't think that it follows from that, that it's okay to inflict suffering on others. I can imagine that people also try to psychologize you. They must think that this view is really not so much the product of a valid chain of reasoning, it's the product of a likely mood disorder. Are you depressed? Is that a diagnosis you must get hurled at you? Yeah, there are lots of people who do exactly that. They try to psychologize it. And I think that's exactly the wrong attitude to have. I think one should look at the arguments, examine them on their merits, and see whether they, whether they stand or fall. But I guess that there, both things could be true. I, I mean, I, I find the arguments very interesting, and, and we will definitely get into those. But I, when I heard about you and your emphasis on this position, I did think that your just experience of the world moment to moment, and that would include your mood and, and you know everything else about you that can be brought to bear on experience, must be coloring the arguments or could be coloring your, your sense of their veracity or, or, or moral import. And I, I guess I'll, I'll tell you about an experience I had, and I'm just wondering if, if there's anything about it that could be relevant to your case. So I, I had a friend, not a close friend, but someone who I had met many, many times, and this was a person who would email me periodically, who was suicidal. And he, he had been suicidal for quite some time. At one point, he sent an email to everyone in his life saying, I, I'm, I'm going to commit suicide. And you know, here's your last chance to talk me out of it. Put that way, it sounds like a, a kind of macabre and gratuitous appeal for attention. But it, it was more, he was actually just being scrupulous to not kill himself so impulsively that he would leave everyone in his life feeling like, you know, if only they had known, they might have been able to do something. So he just, he was going to give everyone in his life a chance to reason with him. And it was kind of of a piece with the reasons why he thought he was killing himself. He really thought he had reasoned himself to a position where suicide was not only 
acceptable, but was really the, the, his best decision. And you know, he had a, a very philosophical. He wasn't a professional philosopher, but he had a very philosophical cast of mind, and he was quite smart. And you know, I went back and forth with him a little bit over email, mostly. And the experience was one of of seeing someone, in my view, mistake his his anhedonia, you know, his his lack of joy in living moment to moment for a kind of philosophical epiphany, which is to say if he felt better, if he was feeling more joy, if he was feeling more of a connection to other people, he would feel, he would, he would have felt that the results of his reasoning on each of those points were less compelling. And I know your argument is not an argument for suicide. I mean, we'll differentiate you know, antinatalism from that. But I'm just wondering if you feel that if the character of your experience were significantly better moment to moment, if you feel like this philosophical conviction would just kind of evaporate or become so uninteresting to you that it would sort of evaporate. Well, I, I don't like to talk about myself, so I'm probably just not going to answer that question. Uh, but I'll make a few observations. And uh, one is that. One ought not to make the assumption that somebody who holds the sort of view that I do is thinking about themselves. Uh, they may be thinking about themselves as well, but they might be just thinking about everything they see around them in the world. Uh, so just if you think about the amount of suffering that's going on in the world at any moment, uh, you, you have to be pretty coarse and callous to not take that seriously. So it needn't be about one's own experiences. It needn't be about uh, one's own attitudes. It, it might be sort of sensitivity or an expression of, of what's going on in the world. So you sort of gave an example that's very um, self-oriented. And what I'm suggesting is that's not the only possible way of looking at things. It's, all, it's also possible to arrive at these sorts of views by looking outward and looking and seeing what you see around you. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And then, of course, the other point is that uh, you spoke about him being anhedonic, but there are plenty of manic people out there. And uh, their views might be colored by their, by their mania. They may be deriving too much pleasure to actually see the world for what it is. Yeah. It's hard to know what is normal here or what is a uncolored lens through which to look at these questions. And, and there may, in fact, be no uncolored lens. It may just be lenses all the way in. So let's get into the, the details of your argument. Run through the, the asymmetry argument for me. So there's, there's actually more than one asymmetry argument, but there is a kind of axiological asymmetry, I think, between benefits and harms, between the good things and the bad things. And uh, obviously, if we're speaking within a life, the pains that you have, the other harms that you have, these are bad. And the good things that you have, those are good. But if we're considering the scenario in which somebody is going to be brought into existence, we have to compare the outcome in which they do from the outcome in which they don't uh, exist. And uh, when in the outcome in which they don't exist, we have to consider the absent harms and the, uh, and the absent benefits. And I think that the absence of the harms is good, even though that person won't exist. Whereas the absence of the good things in that life is not going to be bad. And that's because there's going to be nobody who's going to be deprived of those, of those good things. And so the, the asymmetry is really between uh, the bad and the good in the scenario in which somebody doesn't exist. Okay, so it strikes me, I, I kind of want to run through each piece of that again so that to make sure that I'm not making a, a mistake here in reasoning, but it strikes me that your 
there's kind of an imbalance here in how you're presenting that, and you could be conjuring the the asymmetry in a way. So you're saying, and just point out where I go wrong here, you're saying that the absence of a good life can't be a harm because there's no one who is harmed. There's no person who is deprived of this life. So the absence of, of goods is not a bad thing. But the absence of a bad life is a good. Here, you, in my view, you're, you're, you're kind of smuggling the absence of existence in as part of the good. You're saying that the prevention of harm is a positive good, even though there is no one who enjoys this absence of harm. Is that where you, you're kind of putting the rabbit in the hat? Well, a lot of people have suggested that I'm doing that, but uh, the point I'm making here is not so much a metaphysical one as, as I say, an axiological one. It's about an asymmetry in, of values between the good things and the bad things in life. And one of the reasons why I think, uh, first of all, I think this asymmetry is actually pretty intuitive, and I think large numbers of people would accept it if, uh, and, until they see where it leads. But this basic asymmetry, I think, explains some other asymmetries that, uh, that many people would, would endorse. So here's, a, here's an example. There are large parts of the universe that are uninhabited. Uh, there aren't beings there, uh, certainly not sentient beings. And if we think about those uninhabited parts of the, of the universe, we're not filled with, and nor do I think we should be filled with remorse for the absent goods that there are there. So if we think about Mars, for example, where there could be Martians, but they aren't, uh, we don't think, gee, think about all that pleasure that those absent Martians uh, could have. Isn't that a terrible thing? We don't think that at all. Um, whereas, think if we think about the absence of, let's say, m you know, Martian wars, uh, just like we have wars on Earth, and we think about the absence of all the suffering there, I think we said that's a pretty good thing. It's pretty good that they don't have that there. That there's that there's nothing like that on Mars. That's a that's an advantage that Mars has over Earth. But there's no one who doesn't have those harms. Exactly, exactly. But uh, I still think that it's a it's a good thing that there's the absence of that suffering on Mars. Now I'll grant you that there are many other possible asymmetries here that we should be concerned about. So, for instance, one thing you claim, or at least I think it's implicit in some of your claims, is that there's much more suffering or possible suffering than there is you know, possible happiness, or, the, or the, the, the depth of it is, is far greater. And so there's, there's an asymmetry between suffering and happiness that is also just, just swings the balance here. So we'll talk about that. But here, I feel like you, you're, you're running afoul of my intuitions here. So, and what you just said about the moral significance of canceling possible goods definitely stands in opposition to the work of every philosopher who is, who is working on what is called existential risk now. So you can have philosophers like you know, Will McCaskill who will say that the greatest possible wrong would be to do something which put our species on track for you know, self-annihilation. And that would be, in large measure, not because of all the suffering that would be caused, because you know, if we're annihilated in, in the right way, it could be completely painless. It would be wrong because it would close the door to all of the, the untold goods that could come from a billion years of creative involvement with the cosmos. If you knew that there was some decision you took today that not only deprived your grandchildren from 
living the most glorious possible life. They just have a, you know, a, a sort of glorious life. But you deprived all of their descendants from even existing and discovering greater depths of beauty. People are persuaded, and, and I'm one of them, that those hypothetical losses are as real as the hypothetical gain of, of not suffering if you don't exist. So I think that when we think about human extinction, there's something that clouds people's thinking. And that's why the moment you think about the application of this asymmetry to human extinction, all these other intuitions of the kind of describing come up. Uh, that's why the example I gave wasn't about human extinction. It was a base of some other species, let's say, on another planet that could have been there and isn't there. And we don't spend any time worrying about that, nor do I think we should spend any time worrying about the absent pleasures over there. When we think about human extinction, there are some confounding variables. The one is the mechanism whereby the extinction takes place. So there's a distinction between whether people sort of die out or whether they're killed off. And so one way in which we could go extinct is uh, through people meeting an untimely end and, uh, and, and being killed. But another way is for everybody to die peacefully in their beds and for the human species to have come to an end because there was no more reproduction. And I think a lot of what's going on with people's intuitions is a mixing up of those things. And then I think there's a lot of sentimentality about the human species. Uh, there's this idea that it's a wonderful species and we'd like it to be around for a long time. And uh, haven't we discovered and done all sorts of wonderful things? And wouldn't it be good if that whole trajectory of scientific discovery went on? And uh, there's a kind of sentimentality about, about having humans around. And so I think that those sorts of factors confound our thinking about cases of human extinction. So I would like to move away from those to think of the application of the asymmetry to other cases and see how it works. Granted, some people might be confounded. I don't think I am here. In fact, I think there are a few more things to say about just canceling the, the human career that are, are relevant here. But before we do, I just want to linger on this, what strikes me as a kind of an asymmetry that has given you your, your first asymmetry here, which is you're accruing a good to non-existent beings on one side of your equation where you're not on the other. Do you, do you not see it that way, or you just think it's justified? No, I, I do see it that way, uh, but I think it's justified. There is this axiological asymmetry, and I think when you do the calculation that follow from that, uh, the, the cards are stacked against bringing somebody into existence, but it's not an artificial stacking. It's, it's one that makes eminent sense. I guess it's still not making sense to me, so let's just spend a few more minutes on this. So we have a person who could have existed but doesn't, and undoubtedly there are philosophical problems with thinking about possibility as well. I mean, you know, are there, are there these possible things, or are there simply actual things, and we're actually just misled by our notion of possibility? But leaving that aside, I might have had a, I have two children, which already convicts me of a monstrous ethical lapse on your account, but we'll leave that aside. But I have, I have decided not to have a third child, you'll be happy to know. So this third child will not experience anything good or anything bad. And on your account, there's no deprivation to him or her for not being brought into existence on account of not getting to do all the good things there are to do. But there is a benefit 
to not suffering all of the inevitable pains of existence. But that benefit doesn't accrue to anyone because no one by this description exists. That's correct. Uh, And it's impossible, of course, if the person doesn't exist for them to enjoy the benefit. But when we're looking at scenarios of bringing somebody into existence or not, we're having to compare those two cases, one scenario in which they do exist and one in which they don't. And if we want to know what's better for that potential person, we need to compare the situation in which they do and the situation in which they don't. And we have to compare, obviously, the scenario in which they don't exist to the one in which they do and make the interest judgments uh, relative to uh, to the world in which the person does exist. How would this calculation run for you if existence was on balance more pleasant and wonderful and creative and beautiful so that every person who comes into existence runs a, you know, a, a better than even chance of having a life worth living. But still, there are, there are many lives that are not worth living, and they come up quite frequently. They're just, they just don't overwhelm the lives that are worth living. Then how would you think about it? Well, that very phrase, a life worth living, I think is ambiguous. And I think it's ambiguous between a life worth starting and a life worth continuing. And I think one mistake people make is to not see that ambiguity, because I think different standards ought to apply to those two cases. So if at a given time there's more good in your life than bad, then your life may indeed be worth uh, continuing. I say may indeed, because there's some complexities there that we could revisit later. Uh, But I think the bar for starting a life is going to be much higher. Let's stick with the starting of life, because we'll get on to whether life is worth continuing. Let's just say that we lived in a world where, at birth, every human being could expect to have a a slightly better-than-even chance. I mean, basically, they're like the house in a casino playing blackjack, right? They have whatever it is, a 52% chance of winning. And winning, in this case, really is winning, right? There's no downside to winning. It's just the 52% of people who have good lives on balance really do have good lives on balance any way you look at them. And then, you know, the 48% of people who don't have negative lives to one or another degree, then how would you think about it? Well, I think even the lives that are good on balance, there's going to be plenty of bad. But let's just stipulate that we live in a world that's kind of like a coin toss. And if the right side of the coin comes up, that is a, a life on balance, however you want to aggregate benefits and, and injuries. So I'm not quite understanding the, the, the question here, because if the analogy is sort of winning at blackjack, well, when you win, you win. There's no downside to the winning. Uh, whereas uh, when you win in this life lottery that you're speaking about, what I want to get clarity on is, is there no downside? Is this a life of unmitigated good? Or is there some negative as well? And from what you said, I was understanding you ought to be saying that there is some bad as well. It's just that on balance, it's good. I guess there could be some bad, but it's, it is, in the case of the lucky life, it is outweighed by the good, so that each of your pains are manageable enough that when your pleasure comes around, you always feel that it was worth it. And l- let's, let's just say that you're right to feel that. We've tuned the luck of, of lucky minds in such a way that, that life is really good and pain does not overwhelm pleasure. Okay. You see, when you, say, uh, when you say that you think it's worth it, are you saying it's worth it to have come into existence yeah. or that it's worth it to continue existing? I am, without granting you that distinction, because I'm not sure I agree that 
exists, but we'll get there. For the purposes of, of, of this point in the conversation, I'm talking about coming into existence. So you don't exist, and I give you the opportunity to exist. And if you could, if you were one of the lucky ones, you would find yourself in a circumstance that was well worth your time. Well, that I think is a confusion. Uh, I grant you that there are many people who say, I'm glad I was brought into existence because I think on balance it's better uh, that, I, that I'm around. I think I'm getting more good than I am getting bad. But I just think that people who hold that view have not thought carefully enough about what the question is. I think that they, because they already exist, they're biased towards the condition in which they already exist. And so what they're actually asking themselves without realizing it is, is my life worth continuing? But I don't think there's any life that's worth starting. And I think there's no life that's worth starting because of this uh, asymmetry. Surely you would grant that if existence were much, much better than it is, in fact, you could imagine a life worth living, right? I mean, what, what if existence just had no suffering at all in it, right? It was just one leap from creative height to another, and every moment was more interesting than the last. So I have considered that possibility, and I think in that scenario, we should be indifferent between coming into existence and not. But I've got to say that that scenario you've imagined is actually pretty hard to imagine in practice. Hard to imagine any real such life. But yes, if, we imagine, if you're thinking about hypothetically, a hypothetical life where you come into existence and there's nothing bad about that, uh, then I would say we are being different between that. And I think we should be indifferent between coming into existence in that condition and not coming into existence at all. That is a, a novel view that I have never considered. Um, I'm wondering whether to focus there for a moment before going on to capture some of these loose threads. Let's spend a moment on that. If I posit a kind of godlike paradise for all conscious beings, right? So there really is just, there's nothing wrong in the universe by any, anything that you can say is wrong, you know, like there's a little ache and pain over here, there's a little dissatisfaction over here. I will just cancel that by saying, no, no, these, those are moments where there's there's more pleasure flooding in there and more uh, an even deeper sense of meaning even deeper gratification of one's intellectual life and these are these are beings who are far more competent than you and I are to judge the character of their experience they've had a billion years to consider the matter and they're still happy to be here imagine minds constituted like that why should we be indifferent to that and the primordial dial tone of non-existing. See, I think what's dividing us here is the asymmetry. Because if you if you think there is the asymmetry that I'm uh, that I'm defending, then you'll say, well, there's nothing bad in that Edenic life that you're speaking about, but there's also nothing bad in the situation of non-existence. So uh, that there they there they're equal. Now you'll say, but in Eden there are all these pleasures, and I say that's great because if you if you're in Eden, uh, it's good that you have those pleasures because your life would be worse without them. But if you've never existed, the absence of those pleasures is going to mean nothing to you. You won't be there. You won't care about it. It doesn't matter that there's, that there's not a being that's having those pleasures. So if you think about, I don't know, Adam and Eve, and then uh, some third character that could have been there, and this is before the fall, obviously, and you say, uh, well, uh, is, it, is it a pity that there's not some additional being here that's not enjoying Eden? No, I don't think there's anything bad about that. And I think it's, there's, an in, there's an indifference. And there should be an indifference. 
I can see that there's nothing bad about it because there's no one to suffer the absence of, of those pleasures and insights. But, but again, by the same token, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that you can make the other move you're making, which is to say that there's something good about not having the suffering imposed on you if you don't exist. I mean, if you don't exist, you can't feel the relief of not being tortured because you don't exist. So I, I feel like that's the there's a symmetry there of just non-being. Let's come back to your, if, to your third possible child. Uh, let's imagine you were thinking about having a third child and uh, you did some genetic tests and you found out that this child that you could have would lead a life that even by your standards is one of great suffering. And so you decide, well, we're not going to go ahead with this third child. We're not going to have this third child. Um, do you think that would be a good thing? Yes. And do you think you've got a reason to avoid bringing that child into existence? But the reason is one which is predicated on the existence of the child and therefore the existence of his or her suffering. We're talking here about the absence of a wrong that I'm not committing by bringing this guaranteed-to-suffer person into existence. So, so you're imagining some scenario in which this child does exist and is leading a life of suffering, and you say, well, I've got a reason to avoid that. Right. Now, let's imagine that you're thinking of having this third child, and uh, you do the tests, and everything's fine. And so it could turn out like your other children are. And I don't know your children. I hope they're doing well, as well as can be. But let's imagine they're doing, they're, they're doing well. And this third child, the probability is that it'll be like that. Let's just say on their, their worst afternoons, they'll confirm everything you fear about the nature of existence. <laughs> on your children, <laughs> yes, first of all. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, they, they, will, they can complain about the most insubstantial things. And you'd be amazed at, at how much anguish can be provoked oh, by yeah, um, I know, I know. Ha having the television turned off prematurely. <laughs> right. But, uh, but let's imagine that this third child would lead a happy life by your standards. Right. Uh, do you have a reason to bring that child into existence? Well, let's leave aside all the other reasons that no doubt you've considered, just you know, their effect on other people, their effect on me, all that. Just, so just localizing the benefit to the person, yes, I think so. I, I think that there's, I mean, this, this comes down to, to population ethics and, and topics that, that I hope we'll touch. but. There is a kind of more is better principle here when you're talking about good lives. These are all fascinating questions and they connect to more or less everything that's fascinating. So it's, I'm just trying to resist the slide into philosophy here. But it seems to me that mu much of what you're saying about bringing people into existence does in fact apply to the continuing existence of existing people. I know you draw a clear line of demarcation there. I, I'm not so sure you can, and, and, and I think this is a, an additional problem for me here. So how is it not analogous for me to say, well, I have a child, and there was, there was something very, very good that could have happened to her. I could have secured some benefit for her that she doesn't know about, but I declined to do that, right? So she has the life she has, but I could have given her the super-enhanced life with really very little effort on my part. You're talking about an existing child here. An existing child. But I declined to do that. So she, now she has her life as it was and was going to be, but it could have been otherwise. And I, you know, for quite capricious reasons of my own, you know, because I didn't want to spend 10 seconds to sign a form or click a button on a website, 
she does not have this extraordinarily positive thing happen for her, and she doesn't know about it, right? So has she been wronged in any way? And I think most people's intuitions would be yes, and yet on your account, I'm wondering if I, if I could say that. Well, we're talking about a case of an existing child here, and I think there, there are all kinds of other complexities about, about this case. Uh, and whether she had some entitlement to your bestowing this benefit, there are all kinds of questions of that kind. But you, you are speaking about an existing child, and so I would say that this child is worse off without this benefit having been bestowed. So whether you've wronged her is, a, is another question, but she's worse off than she would have been if you'd bestowed this benefit. But I don't think that a parallel claim can be made about a child that you don't bring into existence. Although if it had come into, into existence, it would have had certain benefits. I think the absence of those benefits, because it doesn't come into existence, is not bad. And it's not bad because it's not deprived. Where, whereas your existing child will be deprived of this benefit you could have, you could have given. Another point of confusion for me here is that you acknowledge a spectrum of experience ranging from the, the very, very positive to the very, very negative. But when you take the zero point of non-existence, you say that we should be indifferent between zero and the very, very positive. Whereas we shouldn't be indifferent between zero and the very, very negative. The very, very negative is worse, obviously, and we, we should avoid it. And we should choose zero every time over the very, very negative. But we should be indifferent to zero over the very, very positive. But I'm not quite sure how that that would work in practice. So imagine if we, you know, we're sliding down the ramp of a hedonic experience. We start at the very, very positive and we start life gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until it gets truly neutral. And maybe there's other forms of neutral beyond the lights going out, but at least one form of neutral is not having any discernible experience. And then we just keep on sliding and things get a little bit bad and a little bit worse and, and all of a sudden we're in hell. It seems to me that if you're going to preserve the, the logical integrity of that spectrum, you have to acknowledge that better really is better than, than nothing. See, again, I don't think, I don't think that it is. Um, this assignment of, uh, of zero that you're proposing is something that I've anticipated before. And I've got an analogy to, to deal with a case like that. Of course, it's an, only an analogy. It, um, it can't be a like the case that we're speaking about in, in every respect. But I imagine these two people, the one is, uh, we call him sick, and the other we call uh, healthy. And uh, sick gets sick, uh, but he's also got some attribute whereby he recovers quickly from his sickness. Um, healthy never gets sick. I mean, never, never, ever gets sick. But he lacks the attribute of quick recovery. So if H were to, were to get sick, he wouldn't quickly recover. It would be a, a very, slow, um, very slow recovery. Now, what I want to say about sick is that that capacity for quick recovery, that that's good, and it's good uh, for sick. But the absence of that capacity in the healthy person is not a, not a net disadvantage over, uh, over sick, because he never has any need for that. Right. And so I think we should say a similar thing about these scenarios about existing and non-existing, and that these absent pleasures are not bad relative to the other scenario. In other words, they're not a net disadvantage uh, in comparison with uh, the scenario in which the person exists. 
So I want to resist that sort of attribution of, let's say, a zero to uh, the absence of, uh, the, of the pleasures or the absence of the good things in life if they're the absent good things of a non-existent person. So not all of my intuitions are being conserved here. I mean, I will say here on, on this point, your, your view is especially Buddhist. And for people who might be surprised by that, and I don't know how familiar you are with, with Buddhist philosophy, but I'll just say that on the Buddhist account, existence is the problem. And they have this, obviously, this view of, of rebirth and, and karma, and there's what's called a wheel of becoming, you know, life after life. You just can't get off this wheel unless you become fully enlightened. Enlightenment consists in no longer being subjected to this continuous cycle of rebirth. There's obviously very good reason to, to doubt that picture of existence scientifically, but the core of the ethical view there and the soteriological view, the, the view of, of what it means to be free, is that existence has this intrinsically unsatisfying character. And, you know, this is for reasons that we really haven't gone into yet. It's just the fact that everything is impermanent. You know, your, your pleasures, no matter how good, always fall away, and you're left with more of a search for pleasure. There's a kind of an intrinsic dissatisfaction, even in satisfaction. It wouldn't be bad if no one existed. And the fact that people exist in a circumstance that is perfect to frustrate the search for happiness and well-being is the problem. And enlightenment is the, the act of canceling all of the, the kind of the mental properties that would cause one to continually be reborn into existence. So your, your view is very Buddhist without offering the, the methodology of enlightenment, or unless you, you do that, and I, I don't know about it. Or the odd metaphysic of, of reincarnation. Exactly, yeah. But there are a few other wrinkles here in Buddhism, and one is that it's possible through a really deep engagement in you know, methods like meditation to come to a kind of equanimity that equalizes pain and pleasure to a remarkable degree and to find a kind of intrinsic well-being in just the nature of consciousness. And that does make some of this, some of the, the Buddhist view that I, I just described somewhat paradoxical. I mean, it's not the problem of existence can really go away to a remarkable degree on the Buddhist account. So that's all just a long way of saying that your view is in, in very good standing with, with certain trends in, in Eastern philosophy, and it just doesn't capture everything they say. But let's take this distinction between the possible lives and the, the existing lives and their interests, because I'm not so sure you're conserving my intuitions there. Why would it be a bad thing for everyone to die tonight painlessly in their sleep? Let's just picture what this entails. So everyone goes to sleep, none the wiser. They don't know this is their last day on earth. There's been no dread in anticipation of the lights going out. But everyone, based on some bad luck or good luck, depending on your view, dies painlessly in his or her sleep. So there's no bereavement. There's no experience of this. There's just the lights going out in seven billion brains all at once. What could be wrong with that? Well, I think that those of us who do exist have an interest in continuing to exist. We've got an interest in not being annihilated. And uh, the scenario you are presenting is one in which we are annihilated. Why do we have an interest 
in being reborn tomorrow from the womb of sleep if existence is, as you say, such that bringing people into, into it is a terrible crime? Well, I think the analogy is not correct. I don't think we are reborn. I mean, we're reborn in a metaphorical sense, but uh, not literally. I think there are all kinds of things that are going on in our sleep. We're, we're continuing to exist in a kind of dispositional state. Uh, our, our interests in continuing to live are surviving through that period of sleep, uh, as are many of our desires and our preferences. And uh, I think if we die in our sleep, uh, one of our interests, the very important interests, at least one, if not many, have been, thought, have been thwarted. I can't see how we have any more interest than a, a new being would. Again, you have to imagine just canceling all, all of the usual problems with people dying, right? They don't know they're going to die, so there's no imposed suffering in advance, and there's no one around to suffer their loss. There's no grief. There's not even a, a, a single neuron in a single brain disposed to grieve about what's happened because no one knows that it will happen and no one's around to know that it has happened. How is that not analogous to someone not coming into existence on the next day? Because somebody who doesn't exist, I think, has got no interest in coming into existence. But somebody who already exists has got an interest in not ceasing to exist. Now, one thing I should add here is that I think these two views are separable. In other words, the asymmetry argument that I've given before and the argument that I'm giving you now, these are two separate arguments. So it's possible for an antinatalist to also be a pro-mortalist of the kind that you're suggesting. So if somebody thinks that uh, a painless death, or let's say death itself, is not bad for the person who dies, and then we add all the stipulations that you've added, if somebody thinks that, then they'd say there's nothing wrong with the scenario. There's nothing bad about the scenario you've described. Uh, but that's a separate view from the from the asymmetry that I've been uh, presenting. So you can have the asymmetry that I presented earlier, and then you can either couple that with the view I'm offering now about ceasing to exist, or you needn't couple it with that. That's precisely the point. I don't see how you can keep them apart. If existence has the character that you you say that it has, and you know, I would grant you, it's you're on very firm ground thinking that pains are worse than pleasures and that there are more of them. And, you know, we can talk about that. But if it really is bad to be brought into the world, and not just a little bad, it's really, really bad, then I don't see how that doesn't extend to the moral character of waking up the next day. And if I can give you a situation where there's, there are no ancillary harms accrued by, by somebody dying, and you know, implicit in everything you're saying about existence is the claim that you know all of these canceled goods of you know future people don't mean anything, right? I mean, there there is no there's no moral weight to place on all the good things that could have happened had humanity continued, because those are these are hypothetical goods that accrue to no one. How is it that having everyone die painlessly in their sleep wouldn't be, on your account, a good thing? And in fact, perhaps the best possible thing we could imagine having happen. Like, if, if you could do it, if you could push that button, you would be a moral hero of, of a sort that has never existed. So, I'm not quite sure how to, how to approach this other than the way I have before, but I think one mistake that you're, uh, that you're making is, when you attribute to me the view that uh, life is, is terrible, um, I think you're oversimplifying where the terrible things happen. So, 
it often gets worse towards the end. So it may be that early on in life, if all's going well, uh, you're not suffering in the kind of extreme way that you will later. Now, if you're thinking about bringing somebody into existence, you've got to think not just about when they're 10 and when they're 20 and when they're 30, but also when they're 60, 70, and 80. You have to think about that part too. I think very few parents think about that. They don't think about the, the cancer that's going to ravage their uh, future adult child's body uh, decades uh, in, in the future, and, and often decades after the parent has died. But they don't even think about that. But they should be thinking about that. That should be something that they're factoring in. Uh, and if you factor that in, then I think what you should say is, I ought not to be creating a child that's going to be susceptible or, vi- or liable to this sort, of, uh, this sort of experience and sort of suffering. But that doesn't mean to say that when the child has been brought into existence and is, let's say, 10 or 20, and hasn't got to that point of life yet, that it is now in that child's interests uh, to, uh, to end its life. So on your account, and I think you know, quite fairly on your account, existence is quite a bit worse than that. I mean, cancer is not what makes existence bad. I mean, when you look at the, the kinds of lives that most people live, even up to the age of 10, it's quite rational to suppose that there's more suffering than happiness on balance. I agree. Um, I, I wasn't suggesting that there's the absence of that. And look, one analogy that I gave in, in the book was about going, let's say, to the theater or to the cinema. Let's imagine you go and the film or the play that, you, that you're watching is not nearly as good as you thought it was going to be. Uh, but it's not so bad that you would leave. You've come out, you've bought the ticket, you're there. Um, you're getting something out of it, um, perhaps enough not to walk out of the theater. But if you'd known in advance that it was this bad, you 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 wouldn't have come. Right. And I think that uh, there are many stages of life where it's like that, where this is really not a great deal uh, that you that you've got, but uh, it's not worth walking out yet. Now that's not to say there doesn't come a time when it's worth walking out. It doesn't it's not to say there's not a time when suicide might be exactly the right option for you. Uh, but once you're there, you're sort of going to stick it out for now. But you wouldn't have come in the first place. And I think that's exactly the view we should take about uh, about existence. Not worth starting, but once you're here and you've got this interest in continuing to exist, stick it out until such time as it really becomes unbearable, and then suicide might be reasonable. Well, again, I feel like you're smuggling into my kind of purified case of mass death all of the other problems with suicide, which is, you know, suicide is guaranteed to be messy and painful and leave people bereaved and all that. And and so those are the interests in continuing to exist. I mean, the interests that people have in not killing themselves entail quite a bit more than the interests in continuing to exist if I can create a case where losing one's life is completely painless, imposes no burden on anyone else, and you don't know what's going to happen, and you never know that it has happened. Right. So I think I can see where our point of disagreement is. So when, when, when I say that uh, we've got an interest in, in not ceasing to exist, you think that I mean uh, that the interest consists in uh, either my sense of foreboding or in the bereavement that um, my relatives will have, and that's not what I mean. Well, no, no. I'm just saying those are those are powerful, confounding factors. They are, and I'm happy to set those aside. I agree with you. We should set those aside. What I'm saying, additionally, David, is that your only conceivable interest in continuing to exist has to contain that life on balance 
is worth living, right? It has to contain some judgment about the character of life. Uh, no, I don't think so. Because I think that even when... Well, at you, least you're saying it's not excruciating. Well, I think even in extremists, I think when people are in that stage where death is the lesser of the two evils, uh, I think it's still an evil. It's, it may be the lesser of the two evils, but it's still an evil. It's still something to be regretted. But why? Because there's no one around to suffer its continuity. So that's the, that's the Epicurean argument. Uh, so you, you're taking the sort of line that if you don't know about it and you and others can't experience it, then there's nothing bad about it. Well, yeah, I would agree with that. But let's drill down further on the transition from life to death. So let's just assume, for argument's sake, this seems somewhat plausible. It is, you know, leaving aside all of the pain and suffering that surrounds the moment of death or can surround it, the actual transition from the conscious continuity of, of being alive to no longer existing is something that we'd all be fairly familiar with by in the, in the act of falling asleep or going under general anesthesia, right? So there's this moment where the lights are on and then they're off and you're, you were, you know, more or less aware of that transition, let's say you, in the general case, you're not aware of it. It's just you're aware of it retrospectively because you wake up in the morning or you come to on the, the gurney after surgery. I think we can leave aside whatever disanalogy there is between a brain that is, that is dead and a brain that is sleeping. From, from the, the perspective of, of most conscious witnesses, there is this hiatus, there's this break in the continuity of conscious experience, and if that break continued for the rest of the, you know, all of time, there'd be no one around to suffer the deprivation of, of life. So how is it that beings have a continued interest in existing independent of making a claim about the value of a life? Well, let me ask you this. So when you go to sleep at night, let's imagine you've got some sort of long-term uh, goal uh, or, or desire, and you go to sleep at night. What do you think happens at that point? Do you think that the desire or the goal gets obliterated and that when you wake up the next morning, it miraculously reforms? Or do you think that it's there in some sort of dispositional state during your sleep? Well, it's certainly there in the sense that I have a brain that could recall the goal given the right circumstances. But if the brain never wakes up and there's no one to whom the loss of a goal accrues, there's no person who was better off having a goal and now doesn't have one. So, so if your goal was to wake up the next morning and you don't wake up the next morning, don't you think your goal has been thwarted? There is no goal seeker anymore who we can point to as the victim of that loss. Yeah, and that's the Epicurean argument. Uh, I don't think there's a knockdown argument against that position. Uh, the vast majority of humanity don't share that intuition, though. So if we, if we are comparing intuitions, uh, most people, and I think there's some argument as well for this position, uh, think that death can be bad for us even if uh, we are not around to experience its deprivation. I think, again, for all the reasons you cite, there's so many contaminating harms and, and hopes and fears around death that, in the general case, it does seem like a very bad thing given how much pain and suffering come in its wake. But the pro-mortalist position seems to me to be of a piece with the, with the antinatalist position in the right circumstances, because what's motivating the antinatalist position 
is this judgment about the character of existence. And the judgment runs far deeper than I realized. I mean, now I realize on the basis of this conversation with you that there is no way to make existence good enough such that it is any better than not non existing, which is not an intuition, obviously, that most people would share. There's no way to tune the dials of positive existence so as to make it better than zero. And it is much, much worse than zero, generally speaking, and for, you know, any world we can find plausible. So again, uh, I think that you could hold that view. And if you do hold that view about death, then you could hold it alongside the antinatalist position. But I don't think you have to. Uh, and the but reason David, why I don't think you... But yeah. let, me, let me just interject one thing here. The badness of dying, you know, again, separate from all of the ancillary pain and suffering around death, but just the badness of having, let's say, in, in this case, your goals canceled, even though you no longer exist to have found them canceled. Think of how, how much weight you need to have on that side of the balance so as to cancel the goodness of no longer being subjected to the misery and the risk of, of even greater misery imposed on everyone by merely existing. Yeah, uh, I realize that. And um, if you ask me if there's one area where I, where I have the greatest doubts, it's about, it's about this. It's about uh, whether we aren't just deceiving ourselves in general about uh, how bad death is. But I think that if, if we do go down that route, then even when we uh, add some of the confounding variables that, uh, that you wanted to exclude, uh, we might have a much broader case for, uh, for suicide. Uh, but I think uh, there are sort of epistemic questions here. So let's imagine you take your own life and you're wrong about that. Let's imagine uh, Epicurus is, is wrong and I'm right about uh, the badness of death. Then you've, you've done, a, done a pretty momentous thing. And if you've taken somebody else's life, you've done an even more serious thing. Whereas I think on the antinatalist question, if I'm wrong and you would not have harmed anybody by bringing them into existence and you hadn't brought them into existence, there's really no harm done. Yeah, I can certainly follow you there uh, in the sense that it seems highly unintuitive to claim that a person who declined to have a child that could have been happy is guilty of some kind of monstrous evil for not bringing that life into existence. doesn't seem equivalent to murdering somebody. No, it doesn't. Except when you talk about all possible future human lives and you get into questions of existential risk, then my sympathy grows. Then I think, well, there's no telling how good life could have been. There's no telling how beautiful the universe of conscious minds could have been. And if you're turning the lights out on the universe, well, it's certainly one of the worst things that you could do. I mean, it's, it's not as bad as creating a, a universe that is nothing but a hell and imposing limitless suffering on, on people. But let me see if I can take a kind of a bird's eye view of the situation, because this is the way I view moral questions and questions of value generally. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with my work on this topic. Basically, I think we're confused by standard philosophical terms like morality and duty. And I think the way that makes the most sense to think about these things is to just recognize that we live in a universe of possible minds and possible experiences. 
There are minds of varying character, both actual and possible, that are susceptible to a wide range of, ex- of experience. And, and we know this experience can be very, very good or very, very negative. And we, don't, we obviously don't know how far that spectrum can reach in, in either direction, right? So we don't know how bad the worst experience might be, and we don't, we don't know how good the best experiences might be. But we have every reason to believe that they can get much worse than we have personally seen or even collectively seen, and we have every reason to believe that they, get, they can get much better than we have seen or, or, or are likely to ever see for minds you know, constituted differently than our own. And, and one of the, the ethical moments where we will soon face is in designing artificial minds and designing artificial intelligence, we'll have to worry whether we're building conscious minds that can suffer. I take that question seriously. That would be on your account and really, you know, I think in any account, a terrible thing to do, to build minds that perhaps are even far more sensitive to suffering than our own and build them to suffer in ways that perhaps we can't imagine. And, and this, would, this would be a bad thing whether or not we know we have done this. The worst case is we could do this in a way that we never find out we've done this and we've just created hells and populated them in our computers. So we live in a, you know, what I call a moral landscape that has peaks and valleys, and we are just kind of edging into the fog, seeking higher ground, both personally and collectively. This landscape has some features of, of a normal landscape. It's one of the reasons why I think the analogy is interesting is that clearly there's not just one peak. There are many equivalent peaks, and, and they may be equivalent in terms of, of the well-being experience there, but they're very different in all other ways. If you're on one, you're not on another, and, and you, you, your mind has to function by very different properties, but they might be the same in terms of well-being. And there are valleys that are different from one another, but they might be you know, similarly low points in terms of the, the kind of suffering there. So when we're talking about questions of value and questions of morality, what I think we're talking about really are just this prospect of navigating away from the worst possible suffering for everyone towards something better, both personally and collectively. And there's no telling how good things can get. And even acknowledging all of the descriptive truths you point to of our world, that there's, there's is on balance much more suffering than happiness, or at least it's more reliably attained. You know, our pleasures don't last very long. We all wind up dying at some point in, in ways that are more or less painful and unpleasant. I think it's important to recognize that there's no telling how much that could change in the future with the right sorts of breakthroughs, right? There's no telling how good end-of-life care could get, you know, with a thousand years of good science under our belts. So to say that our descendants will always suffer from cancer, say, or, or some protracted illness, it's quite unlikely that, that that would be true if we continued to make progress. So I basically look at this picture of the rightness or wrongness of any question reducing to a kind of navigation problem. All these experiences on offer for all the possible minds, and we know that the worst possible suffering for everyone is a terrible outcome, and virtually every other outcome, or I would say, in fact, every other outcome is better than that. And we are just navigating away from the worst possible misery for everyone 
to something better. And you're, you're certainly acknowledging that there's, there are many things that are better than the worst possible misery for everyone, and, and non-existence is, is certainly one of those things that's better. But there's all of these other things that are better, and I would say, again, this is one place where we diverge, you would say that none of these things are better, no matter how good they are, than non-existence. But leaving that aside for a second, everything I'm, I'm hearing from you, I'm, I'm trying to map onto this, this navigation problem. And if you're going to tell me that human life, to keep it the local case here, is so reliably bad that, that having children, even in a circumstance where you can be pretty confident that you'll assure them a, what's considered a very good human life in our context, right? You're not giving birth, you know, in Haiti during the earthquake. You're living a, a life of abundance in the developed world. You're telling me that life is so bad that bringing those, a child into this world is a monstrous evil. I can't see how that doesn't give you, really by definition, something like the pro-mortalist position, because in order to cancel that, in order to say that this misery on offer is worth going through tomorrow morning when you wake up, you have to say that death is intrinsically a terrible, terrible thing, and its badness somehow persists even when you don't exist. I don't see the basis for that. I mean, how long does death last? Three minutes? Two seconds? No, forever. Unlike diamonds, which are not really forever, this is forever. The forever is from the perspective of no one. That's correct. That's and if death, if death lasts forever, that harm is accruing in the same place, or so I would say, as the harm of being deprived of the benefits of a good life. No, that's exactly where we're disagreeing. But, but in this, in what you've just said, you, I think you're saying multiple different things. Uh, in other words, I, at different points in, in, uh, in, in your exposition, I thought you were saying something different. Mm-hmm. So at first, what I thought you were saying was that it may be that in the future, uh, lives will be, will be much, much better than they are now, uh, really nearly blissful lives, because we don't know how much the science will progress and uh, how, how good we can make a human life. And my response to that, was that not what you were saying? No, no, I, I would say that's uh, certainly possible, yeah. Uh, well, my, my response to that is that even if that's true, and I, I think that's unduly optimistic, I think that... Uh, bad things in life are going to constantly evade, evade our, our, our treatment, our therapy. So even if we cure cancer, there'll be something else that comes along that we'll then have to turn our attention to. But even if we set aside that, and even if we think that there is some great condition that we can get into in, in 100,000 years' time, or even 10,000 years' time, even 1,000 years' time, it's not clear to me that subjecting the intervening people to what we would be subjecting them to could warrant that outcome. So, so let's imagine we were having this conversation 20,000 years ago where there was no anesthesia and uh, people had to have a leg amputated. They just cut it off. Perhaps they'd get a bit of grog or something, but uh, they'd, 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 be, they'd be fully conscious while they had their leg amputated or they had a, a, a tooth pulled. Uh, and uh, the Sam Harris of the past said, look, you know, one day there'll be this great thing that's called anesthesia and people won't have to have that, won't have to go through these experiences, at least if they're in the developed world and they've got access to it. I'll say, yeah, but it's pretty indecent to put the next number of generations through what they're going to go through to get to that point. 
it's just not worth it. What you do is you pull their teeth while you amputate their legs so as to distract them. <laughs> That's not what I would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> so the character of existence is the coin that you are cashing in here to, to run this through intuitively. The moment existence gets better and better, the balance swings. And, and when it gets worse and worse, the balance swings in the other direction. And I'm still hung up on a few places where our intuitions don't align. And I guess it's the collapse of antinatalism into pro-mortalism that, that I stuck on here. It's just, if you told me that I was going to get my leg sawed off tomorrow and every day thereafter, that that's what life was now going to be like, well, then I can easily find a, a, a means of death that is better than getting my leg sawed off. The badness of death and the badness of having my goals frustrated counts as nothing in light of that kind of existence. I don't think it counts as nothing. I just think it, I think it gets defeated by the prospect of having your leg cut off without anesthesia. So if I had that prospect tomorrow, yes, I would also rather die. But if I had the prospect of having my leg cut off... Not just tomorrow, perhaps, but I'm just saying that, you know, every day for the, the rest of your life. Yeah, that too. But let's imagine I knew this leg cutting was only going to start in 20 years' time. Then I might say, well, the badness of death is going to keep me going in the meantime. And I'm going to stick it around. And when I get a little closer to that leg cutting time, then death would be welcome, even though it would still be an evil. It'll be the lesser of the evils. I'm granting the possibility that... Uh, I'm wrong about how, death, how bad death is. That If I am wrong about that, then I think we should be pro-mortalists, but not just because we're antinatalists. I think we should be pro-mortalists on other grounds. We must try and minimize the, uh, the unfortunate side effects that you're speaking about. But I don't think I have to uh, adopt pro-mortalism because I'm an antinatalist. And I think that the method for, vo for, for avoiding it is by saying that death is uh, a harm to the person who dies or is bad for the person who dies. Ways of doing that. I've spoken about annihilation. You can speak about deprivation. There's the deprivation account of, of death's badness. That's another way of doing it. Now, you can, we can argue about the merits of those different views of the badness of death, uh, but at least on the face of it, there are arguments that death is bad, even though there is nobody who experiences that badness. So I'm, I'm not sure whether we should sort of get sidetracked by the debate about death. What we should, I think, uh, recognize is um, there is a question about that, and if you're right about death, then my antinatalist view should commit me to pro-mortalism, and I'm perfectly happy to acknowledge that. If, on the other hand, I'm right about the question of death, then I am not committed to pro-mortalism just because I'm an antinatalist. Okay, yeah, well, yeah, I, I certainly don't want to get bogged down here. I guess it's, I have the, the hope that we can always press through and, and find ourselves converging. Ever the optimist. But your pessimism may be warranted here, so I, I guess I just... I'll register, for the benefit of our listeners, I'll just register the, the objections that have occurred to me thus far where I feel like we, we don't converge. And, and one is just on the, the initial architecture of this first asymmetry, this idea that you can say that being deprived of harms or being spared harms is a good thing for one who doesn't exist, but you can't say that being deprived of good things is a bad thing for one who doesn't exist. I think that initial asymmetry, which is doing a lot of work for you. Not as much as you think. Yeah, the truth is I don't actually think you need it to have your view. But no. what you do need to have your view, and this is, again, this is where your view sort of slides into the pro-mortalism for me. What you do need is to have a judgment 
a judgment about the character of existence that is pessimistic enough to make it seem that life really isn't worth living, not only for those who don't yet exist, but those who exist in this state of mediocrity we, you know, we, <laughs> we call a podcast. Like the two of us should really, again, leaving aside imposing misery on those who love us, we should really not just be indifferent to not waking up tomorrow, we should hope it happens. We should hope it happens for everybody in some painless way so as to be spared the certain misery that is coming our way and the possible horrific amplification of the misery that is that is possible that you know we're that we're probably not even thinking about we're we're thinking about cancer we're not thinking about surviving a nuclear war and having to live in some hellscape that you, you know one reads about in in history books or or sees in in dystopian movies but all of that's on on the menu too right or or at least potentially Look, the miseries I'm expecting tomorrow are not so bad that I would rather be dead, at least the ones I'm expecting. Um, that might not be true down the line. Okay, but, but, uh, but David, let's, let's just focus there. So if that's how you feel about tomorrow for you, and I hand you your newborn baby, how is it that you wouldn't feel the same sort of default optimism for the prospects of your baby enjoying tomorrow? But that's a being that already exists. And this is why we're coming back to, the, I think, this fundamental disagreement between us. You keep speaking about the life that's worth living. And that does elide the difference between a life worth starting and a life worth continuing. Uh, if I had a baby in front of me, I would not kill it for its sake. You would think it would be better that it had not been born. Better that it had not been born, but that's different uh, to say that it's better for it to now die. We're sort of disagreeing about just, just what the space provided is in order to put that difference but yeah it depends on how bad death is and you've you don't think it's bad if you avoid all those confounding variables and i think that uh, even if we avoid all of those it is bad and uh, if as i say if i'm wrong about that and you're right then uh, pre-mortalism is exactly the right view to adopt if on the other hand i'm right about the death question and you're wrong then there's a way of avoiding the move from uh, antinatalism to pre-mortalism I can't find a shelf to place this this highly negative value, but let's just stipulate that such a shelf exists. You're not thinking about that as a reason not to die tonight. You're thinking about the fact that tomorrow could be a, a very good day or a, or a normal a normal not too bad day, right? When I when I think about not dying, and I think many people when they think about uh, about their, their prospective death, they don't want to be annihilated. Uh, and they they prepare to accept a lot of things to avoid that bad. But when they think about being annihilated, they think about again all of the the ancillary things that we have left off the table and, and are right to leave off the table. I don't think it's just that. I don't think it's just that. But again, there is this paradox that people imagine death being this terrifying thing. Again, leaving aside the pain of the the means of death and all of that suffering, but just in the moment people think they're afraid to lose experience. They think they're afraid to have the lights go out. They think they're afraid to be suddenly deprived of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling, and the discursive mind that would allow them to entertain their goals and, and their ability to, to, to remember who they are and all the rest. But we do that 
every single night of our lives that we fall asleep. And when we can't do that for some reason, when you're suffering from insomnia, you know, you're struggling to get to sleep, you're just, you're, you're waiting for the lights to go out and they won't go out, that becomes its own agony. We surrender to sleep as though to one of the greatest pleasures we ever encounter once we get exhausted enough. Because we expect to wake up. Well, we do, but, but our, our surrender isn't contingent upon our reiterating to ourselves that we will wake up. You know, we're not saying, I know this seems crazy, the lights are going to go, go out, but I, I, I've, you know, I have it on good authority, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and, and be able to, to live another day. We don't think about that at all. We just, we just, I mean, just think of what it's like to fall asleep. In the general case, it just happens to you and you don't know what the hell happened and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're waking up. But when you're struggling to get there, you can feel that what you want is for experience of the normal kind to just go away, right? You don't want to keep hearing what you're hearing or thinking what you're thinking. And so people yearn for it. Death, obviously, is not the same thing as sleep, but it could have, I would imagine, in the context of an ordinary death with all the suffering that tends to surround it, it could have very much that character where you're just I mean, just you're on the on the the event horizon of some profound relief from sensory experience, and surrender to that could feel quite good and appropriate. I don't deny that death that death has its charms. There's certain advantages to it. Uh, what I'm saying is that it's also got serious downsides, and that's the point that we're disagreeing on. I think we we can move on here. I just I, I can't figure out where to put those downsides, but. I mean, maybe there's, you know, I'm living in a, in a three-dimensional moral universe and there's a fourth dimension and you found it and yet you can't point forward, backward, left or right or up or down to indicate it to me. But wherever that place is, you have to put an enormous downside in order to swing the balance in favor of continuing to live. I, I agree. I agree about that. Okay. It has to be an enormous downside and I happen to think that it is. At least we understand our... Mm confusion at that point. I think we both agree that people, to use philosophical jargon here, that people aren't subjectively incorrigible, which is to say people aren't perfect authorities about anything, even about the character of their own experience. So a person can be, you know, rather bad at judging how happy he is, or, you know, a person can think that he loves his wife and kids more or less all the time, but he can be wildly wrong about how often he actually feels love or, or expresses love. So people aren't perfect judges of, of whether their lives are good in any way, necessarily. But there's this paradox that, that people can become both better judges of, of what's going on, and their judgments can, in fact, be a factor in dictating the quality of their life. Judgments, you know, whether veridical or not, can change how one feels in each moment. And, and, and life can get much better or worse depending on how one pays attention to what it's like to be you. On some level, we're, we have to take people's word and, and people have to take their own word for how good or bad life is or how worth it it is or was to go through periods of suffering. How do you think about that? There are people who will tell you, obviously, it's a very common experience, that they've gone through something that seems objectively terrible, or, or it would be something they would be genuinely terrified to endure 
had you told them it was going to happen to them. But going through the experience, they are empowered by it. They feel like it has brought greater meaning to their life. They have new capacities that they didn't imagine they, they would ever have. How do you view those chapters in life like that in light of what you're saying? Well, I think you're correct that uh, people are not uh, reliable judges of, the, of their own quality of life. But there are all kinds of ways in which people can, can err. I also think you're correct that the view you do hold can form a kind of feedback loop into the quality of your life. So that if you think that the quality of your life is better than it actually is, it actually becomes a bit better than it actually would otherwise have been if you didn't have that attitude. Right. Um, but it doesn't mean that your view becomes completely correct. It's just that uh, your life sort of alters in the direction of your perception. So I think all of that is true. And I think it's also true that people do try to find meaning in the unpleasant features of life. They try to benefit in some way from, from the suffering and the other bad experiences and the other misfortunes that they, that they suffer. And I think that's all to the good. It's, it's good if somebody can try to harvest some good out of that bad. But none of that, I think, would justify the infliction of the, of the bad in the, in the first place. If you think, for example, about, I don't know, a rape victim who uh, does something empowering as a result of that awful experience and finds some kind of meaning in life through that by perhaps helping other victims of this sort of assault, um, it's good that they can derive some, uh, some solace, as it were. But that wouldn't warrant in any way the infliction of that sort of act on, on them in the first place. And I would say something similar about bringing somebody into existence. If you bring them into existence and they find meaning and they seek purpose and they, they try to see the good in life, that's all great. But it doesn't mean that you were warranted in the first place in creating them. You're making a judgment about the character of existence and you're, you're making a kind of vicarious judgment for others. You're surveying you know, what the careers of various people have been like from birth to death, and you're assuming you know what it's like to, or something, some semblance of, of what it's like to live all those lives and endure all those experiences. And that's how you're coming to this view of the value of existence. I think there's no way around that, that you're, you're making a judgment, and we know we're bad at making these judgments, both for ourselves and presumably we're, we're bad at doing it for others. And so this, a lot of this comes out of behavioral economics. We know that people overestimate the durable effects of both good and bad experiences. So like if I told you, you know, you would have to spend the rest of your life as a paraplegic, you would very likely, if you're a normal person, have a, a far too pessimistic view of what the effect would be on your happiness of that change in your life. There's this initial terrible degradation of your happiness, but what tends to happen is people become, you know, more or less as happy as they've always been once they get their act together for most things. This is true of, you know, almost every terrible thing that people recover from in some basic sense. So we're bad judges of, of that. But I can imagine, I could just imagine if, if you could take a poll of every person who's ever existed on their deathbed and ask them two questions. You ask them, do you regret having existed? And, you know, would you want to do this again? Would you want a second chance at a life very much like the one you lived? It seems to me that's the, the only sort of exhaustive sampling of, of the, the information space we could have. And I would expect those polls 
to run very much counter to what you're suggesting here. And again, I, I think it's coherent to say that everyone could be wrong on some level here, but I would expect people to say, I'm glad I lived and I would like to continue living or to live another life. I feel like that's probably where most people, like apart from the people who just suffered the worst possible lives, I feel like most people, even people who had classically hard lives, would say that. Do you have a different intuition there? No, I think you're correct. Uh, probably not as often as you think, because I've I've known at least some people who have found my views to be correct when they've reached that point in their life, uh, where the suffering is just unspeakable, and they think at that point it's none, none, nothing is worth what I'm going through now. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, more people, a majority of people, had your response. But I would still distrust it. Uh, and uh, I, was, I think what's going on is a kind of a, a, a adaptation, a kind of adaptive preference even. So people find themselves in existence, and, uh, and now they try to rationalize this in some way, and they adapt to their circumstances. So let's imagine you, you showed me slaves who were happy to be slaves, and they were born into slavery, and they said, look, I, I want to, uh, I'm, I'm glad I was born, even though I was born a slave. I think I would still offer the advice that you ought not be breeding more slaves. Even though they reassured me that they were happy, I'd say, don't do it. Don't bring more in. Not a good idea. Well, again, that's just by comparison with the the free state of non-slaves that we we value more. But I view all of human existence as analogous to some form of slavery by comparison. If we compare our lives at present with the unimaginably good lives that are possible for beings like ourselves, then we are, you know, we're the, the worst form of slaves, no doubt. But it still doesn't caused me to say that these lives aren't worth living. And one of the reasons why they might be worth living to people other than ourselves are the are our descendants who could live in a much better world than the one we're living in. I don't think that hundreds of generations of uh, of enslavement is is worth it, even if the outcome is going to be eventual freedom for some future generation. What if we live in a world where you know, we've had, you know, there's now 7 billion people alive. I forget what the estimates are. I think it's... It's about 106 billion, I think. Yeah. As I recall, have ever lived. Of course, the calculations vary depending on when you think humans started. And, right. And what counts as a human. I've heard the, the same number of about 100 billion. So let's say there's been 100 billion Homo sapiens thus far, and, and 7 billion are currently alive. If we're going to become a species or a line of, of future species of, you know, space-faring, unimaginably advanced beings who, you know, take full creative control over their evolution, that seems possible if we don't do something incredibly stupid in the meantime. I mean, really, it, it feels like we, we have a, a, like a hundred-year bottleneck here that we have to get through in order to have the most Star Trekian sort of future. A hundred billion is is like nothing compared to the the billions upon billions upon billions that may yet exist to live lives that are good enough so that they look back on us the way we look back on the poor cavemen and women who um you know were struggling to start fires and and not cannibalize one another well obviously you and I are looking back at those uh those cave dwellers very differently because i I'm sorry they reproduced. And there's nothing I can put on the balance in the future that seems 
to make anyone's sacrifice worth enduring. Well, let, let me ask you this. So let, let's imagine that you knew that your children and your grandchildren, let's say, and your, and your great-grandchildren would suffer unspeakably. Such that, so that, but then the subsequent generations will all have blissful lives. Would you, would you breed the next generation? I mean, they've done it already, but if you could go back and uh, make the decision, would you do that? If you knew the next few generations would suffer unspeakably, and that was the cost that had to be paid in order to yield some massive benefit for some future people with whom you've got no direct contact, would you do it? Because I think there's something indecent about that. Well, it, well, it is a, a difficult question, especially if you turn the suffering up high enough, then it becomes something that, that I feel like I could never impose on somebody yeah. else against their will. That's exactly my view. And I think the suffering is pretty high. You don't have to look at it on a day-to-day basis. Look at it over the course of somebody's lifespan. Um, there's a lot of suffering there that you're inflicting, uh, and, and also the risk of, uh, of suffering. I mean, I think the risk is even sufficient. But the crucial difference here is that it is suffering that in most cases, or at least in the case that I could foresee by procreating, is suffering that the person themselves, once they become as adequate as I am to judge the character of their own lives, the person, him or herself, will say, I want more of this. I'm happy to be here. I'm, you know, what do you want to get for lunch? Well, first of all, there are a lot of people of whom that's not true. There are a lot of depressive people out there. There are a lot of people uh, who are suicidal. That's true. Uh, yeah. And you've got, to think about, you've got to think about the parents who bred those children. But the ethical decision here is if you could foresee the fact that you, your children would be miserable, you know, unendurably miserable and never recover, well, then, of course, you would have some kind of ethical duty not to procreate. I, I fully agree there. But I mean, so the, the situation you're asking me to consider is kind of analogous to your saying that if I knew that I could just torture someone in a dungeon, just one person for you know 50 years, and this would bring about some great benefit elsewhere, you'd have millions of happy people. If only I would torture this one person in my basement, would I do that? It's very difficult for me to say yes to that, given the details. But I would say that we actually do say yes to that by default in other ways that no one has to own just by organizing a world that is as inequitable as it is. I mean, you know, the fact that we participate in an economy that leaves some people living lives that are, that, you know, one would argue are just barely worth living so as to produce the goods we all enjoy and then discard. I mean, that's, there are inequalities in our world that are glaring enough that we all are sort of allowing people to be tortured in our basements for nothing like the benefit that you, you are suggesting. But if you spell it out too clearly, it becomes insupportable once you ask me to do the torturing. Right, but even if I'm not asking you to do the torturing directly, uh, but I'm asking you to think about the, the suffering that, that will occur, um, I think if you think carefully about that, you should say, I ought not to do it. I, and I'm, I'm speaking now about the future people case, because the, the case you've provided is more complicated, because the, the, you're going to torture one person in order to bring some benefit to already existing people. Right. Uh, right. And so it, maybe some people will think that can be justified. Uh, but even if you think that can be justified, I don't think that's going to imply anything for the case I'm imagining, where you're going to inflict pain and suffering on these beings in order to ensure that there are future people who will have these blissful lives. 
and that if you didn't inflict this pain and suffering, then the, those future people with blissful lives wouldn't exist. So I will grant you totally that if I expect my children to have lives that are not worth living, it becomes ethically problematic to bring them into existence, even if we can imagine that they stand a chance of having children who would have better lives, and that, that, that my descendants could then kind of climb out of this well of suffering I've prepared for them. But what I'm expecting, and, and certainly what most people expect when they have kids, if they think about this at all, are people very much like themselves who have lives that they want to maintain the moment they find themselves in existence, right? So that they're having, they're having lives that seem intrinsically worth preserving, at least most of the time. So we're not in the situation of consciously imposing immeasurable suffering on future generations that is never compensated by a life worth living. But you're telling me about the psychology of people. Right. And I'm saying we need to look beyond the psychology of people, because if people are just adapting to their circumstances and they're thinking, well, I'm balanced, I'd rather be here. Um, if that's an unreliable judgment, then we shouldn't use those judgments that they're making as a basis for reproducing, for producing more people who will suffer quite terrible things. Except the only basis for making this judgment ever is the psychology of everyone who can be asked this question, is life worth living? And again, when we have, we have ways of triangulating on self-deception and adaptation and all of that, but you know, even in your own case, so you're bringing all of your powers of, of philosophical self-awareness to bear on the question of whether your life is worth living, you know you might be deceived about it to some degree. I mean, let's say you go on vacation and I ask you, you know, how, how was your vacation to Rome? And you say, oh, it was, it was great. And then, I, you know, we, we have a more searching conversation than that. And it begins to seem that, you know, your time in Rome was, you know, dogged by jet lag and, and other forms of dissatisfaction that, that make it seem like, in retrospect, not as good as you recalled at first. So we know that you're not subjectively incorrigible either. But you're still making this judgment about the character of existence. We're not getting out of our psychology for this. We're talking about the character of, of human experience. What would you say about the slave case? First, I could certainly imagine a happy slave. That's not a non sequitur, or that's not a, an oxymoron. Well, let's, let's put it this way. Not a, not, I don't know what you mean by a happy slave, but let's imagine you've got somebody who's enslaved. They're subjected to a certain amount of, of brutality. There's piles of unpleasantness in their life. When you ask them, are you glad that you came into existence? Uh, and they answer yes. Uh, would you now use that datum as a, part of a justification for breeding further slaves who would live in those sorts of circumstances? Again, we can't smuggle in too much under the, the rubric of slavery. I mean, slavery is only slavery when you can imagine some alternative form of freedom that others enjoy or that is easily attainable. Right, but I'm presenting that case to you because you need to think about a scenario where you can think about the alternatives and think about them quite vividly. Yeah, but I'm just saying that, again, it, it doesn't do so much work for me because I, you know, I think our current circumstance is, is slavery by, by some other metric, right? Clearly, human life could be reliably bad enough so that we would say there's really no point in it. The character of 
of experience is what really matters to me. And, and I would argue it's really the only thing that can matter to anyone who exists to have things matter at all. All we have is consciousness and its contents as a place in which to locate you know, value. So that is another assumption. Uh, and there'd be a lot of people who disagree with that assumption. I hesitate to go down that path, but I've never heard a coherent utterance that pretended to be a disagreement to that assumption. I mean, or at least it never seemed coherent to me. If you're, if you're going to tell me that there's something that's extraordinarily important and valuable, and it would be a moral wrong to destroy this thing, but this thing has no experience in and of itself, it's not a mind, and there is no conscious mind, actual or potential, that will ever experience this thing, right? This is a corner of the universe that is dark and will be forever unexplored and has no effect on anything else in the universe. So it's completely isolated, but it is nevertheless incredibly important and we should care about it. That's like a, you know, a square circle. That is a, a logically impossible thing, given the way I define these terms. The only reservoir of value is the actual or potential change in the experience of some conscious system. We're talking about subjective non-existence. We're talking about beings who don't exist in the space they need to exist in order to enjoy or suffer any change in the universe. So you would go on the experience machine and you'd think that people who wouldn't are just confused. So let's remind people or, or inform them about what the experience machine is. Do you want to prop up that thought experiment? Sure. It's a ex thought experiment of Robert Nozick, and he imagines this scenario where you get offered the opportunity to be plugged into this experience machine. Uh, when you're on the experience machine, you're not aware that you're on it. You think that this is real life. Uh, and in advance of going on the machine, you could choose whichever experiences you want to have for the rest of your biological life. Uh, you then get attached to the machine to get put to sleep and get fed these experiences. Because you've chosen them, presumably you would have chosen just positive experiences or maximized the number of positive experiences you, that you can have. And the question is, if offered this choice, would you go on the machine or would you not? And most people who are offered this choice don't want to go on the machine. There's some, of course, who do, but, but most say they would decline the, the machine. This is a very interesting thought experiment for reasons that I think Nozick couldn't fully anticipate. I, mean, I think this experiment is aging better and better and is becoming more and more interesting given the prospect of AI and, you know, recent quirky arguments in philosophy, you know, the, the simulation argument of Nick Bostrom. However seriously one takes the prospect that we could be living in an experienced machine already, it's certainly less crazy than it would have been when Nozick wrote his book. But I have a few intuitions here that I don't totally trust. And I, I think w w what happens here is it, when people recoil from the idea of, of being in the experience machine, I, I guess a, a more modern version of this is the matrix, they smuggle in, as, as they do on many of these other questions we're, we're touching, they smuggle in some associated concerns that really are not intrinsic to it, you know, or that you have to you know, hold to the side to actually think about it. So for instance, people care whether they're in touch with reality, right? And then you can ask, you know, why do you care about that? It seems to promise the difference between a fake experience and a real experience, or a justified form of well-being and an unjustified form of well-being. And those distinctions break down 
or certainly can break down the more you analyze our, our entanglement with reality in the first place. The one part of the experience machine that would trouble me that I think we could get over, I mean, which we could just fundamentally change, is the issue of being, of not being actually in relationship with other conscious minds. One version of the experience machine would be you're essentially in a dream state, you know, where you're, however pleasant the dream, the people you meet, the people you're in relationship to, you know, they could be the most interesting people you've ever met and the most beautiful people, and you have these incredibly rewarding relationships, but in reality, they're zombies, you know, or they're, you know, they're avatars, they're, they're figments of code, and you're not actually in relationship with anybody, right? So the falsity of that circumstance matters to people. But of course, the matrix need not be like that. These could be, you know, artificial intelligences that actually are conscious, right? So you could be in a, a simulated world populated by conscious beings that are every bit as conscious as they seem and are indistinguishable from biological people as far as their experience goes. So that, that changes things or could change things massively for people. The uncanniness of the experience machine isn't going to get me to balk here. I really, I do think consciousness is the reservoir of value. The, the only reasons why the experience machine would be undesirable, from my point of view, would have to be things that would be a matter of conscious thoughts and attitudes and associations that I would have that would diminish the quality of that experience. So I just gave you one. You know, this beautiful woman who you think you're married to in the experience machine is in fact just a, a confection of ones and zeros that some evil genius has created for you, for your, for your amusement. You're not actually in relationship. Well, then that, that matters to me, given all of the, the dominoes that start falling in the negative direction you know, the moment I have to take that on board and realize that you know, everything isn't as it seems. Right. So I was just wanting to clarify your position. I don't think it's profitable for us to go down and examine whether this is the correct view or not. But I think your view is more controversial than you would uh, than you would recognize. And there are some people who who do find the experience machine to be good evidence that it's not just conscious states that uh, that matter. It's actual and potential conscious states. So, like one of the reasons why it's good to be in touch with reality, or so I would say, is that reality matters whether you're aware of it or not, right? Reality is what's there determining the future state of your conscious experience, and it's a thing you're going to bump into in the dark when you're unaware of the terrain. And so, all things being equal, you want to have your beliefs about your circumstance to be in, in some register with, with your actual circumstance because, you know, that's the only thing that's going to, going to spare you extraordinarily unpleasant surprises. We have this bias, and I think it's it's a well-founded one against being delusional, however pleasant the delusions could be. But there is some construal of our current circumstance which does reveal it to be a kind of experience machine. There's a dreamlike quality. I mean, even just speaking, you know, just neurologically, where is our experience coming from? What is your brain doing to produce it? And you know, how much of the real world is getting in? We are having a kind of controlled hallucination much of the time you one could even say all of the time and given our growing capacity to 
change ourselves with our technology. The moment we start hooking our brains directly to computers and having something like virtual reality piped in directly, then we, this experience machine is coming whether we like it or not. I worry I've distracted you. All I want to do is to flag what I took <laughs> to be a somewhat controversial assumption. Yeah, yeah. And I worry we've gone down a line we perhaps shouldn't go down. I think it is interesting. It is interesting, that it is. Our listeners can tell us whether we just bore them to death and ruin their experience machine. They can reprogram. So what does your view do to considerations of population ethics, which are these long-standing problems in moral philosophy, which I've tried to think about, I wrote a little bit about Derek Parfit in at least two of my books, The Moral Landscape and, and Waking Up. Parfit has some great thought experiments about the paradoxes of thinking about aggregate well-being. You know, how do we summarize the well-being of billions of people? And he has an especially famous thought experiment titled The Repugnant Conclusion. Do you think the antinatalist view extends our ability to resolve some of these paradoxes? I do indeed. Uh, I think that uh, many of those population problems can really be dissolved if you uh, accept my arguments. Let's spend a little time there because uh, people find this this area fascinating. Well, I mean, first of all, there's the there's the, the non-identity problem, uh, and that is the problem about whether you could harm somebody by bringing them into existence. And uh, there are different versions of that problem, but I suppose the most acute version is when you think that the life that is started is a life that's worth living. And so the question is, let's imagine you could either conceive a child now that will uh, suffer quite badly, but still have a life that's uh, worth living, or you could wait a while and conceive some other child uh, that will not suffer anything like the way that the first child would. Um, so you, in other words, the timing of your procreation will alter the identity of the person who's brought into existence. Right. Uh, let's imagine the person decides not to delay and they have the first child then uh, the question is, have you done anything uh, bad? Have you, have you harmed that uh, child? And um, what people often want to say is that because the alternative scenario is one in which that child would not have existed, uh, you haven't harmed that child at least so long as the life is a life that's worth living. Of course, if you think that the life is not worth living in one sense, namely not worth starting, you can say, yes, having that child does harm that child. If you'd waited and had the other child, you would have harmed that child, perhaps not as badly as you harmed the first child, but you've nonetheless uh, harmed it. And so I think that this can solve the, the, the non-identity problem. Um, the repugnant conclusion is the conclusion of an argument in which you can either have one world in which you have a small number of people with very high quality of life, or uh, a second world in which the quality of life is slightly lower but there's sufficient additional people that the total amount of happiness, as it were, in that world is better. And uh, at least on some views, uh, the second world is preferred to the, uh, to the, first, uh, to the first world. Um, if you then continue this process and you keep imagining a successive worlds which have uh, increasing larger populations, but the quality of life of any individual is reduced, you end up with what Derek Buffett calls World uh, Z, uh, or Z in American terms, which is a, a world in which people have lives that are just barely worth living, but there's sufficient number of them 
that the total happiness or utility in that world is greater than in the, uh, the very first world that you imagine. And uh, on uh, these views, I think uh, the total amount of, of utility is, uh, is what you should be aiming at. World Z is better than world A, and uh, Derek Parfit thinks that that is a repugnant conclusion. Right. So I, I just want to spell that out a little more. It can be hard for people to understand it, hearing it for the first time. So you imagine a world where, let's say, there's a billion people who have just the best conceivable lives. It's as good as it can possibly get. We can barely imagine how good it is. And that's where you're starting. And then on the assumption that, that more is better, that you know, having more happy people is, is better than having fewer happy people, you could create an alternate world alongside it, which is where people are a little bit less happy, but just a little bit. I mean, it's still just an unimaginably good world. And there are many, many more people. So, you know, we go from a billion, you know, super happy people to a trillion almost super happy people. Well, that clearly that's better. That intuition can be justified by our core ethical intuitions that it's sort of good to spread the wealth around, right? It's good to for people who ha are enjoying some real abundance to make perhaps minor sacrifices to help other people. Not quite. It's not quite drawing on that same intuition because when you want to spread the wealth around, you're sort of spreading it, spreading it among existing people. Right. Whereas this thought experiment is about two alternative universes, uh, and you've got to choose between them. Right. And this is sort of where it runs afoul of your antinatalist intuitions as well. But there is this intuition that more extraordinarily happy lives are better than than fewer. And if you if you make the increment of reducing happiness small enough and add enough people to the other world, it can seem like a completely straightforward choice between world A and world B. But if you just continue that process long enough, all the way to Z, you wind up with a world which, as you say, is, is immensely populated with lives that are just barely worth living. And these are, on assumption, truly terrible lives by comparison with anything that we would recognize as being happy ones. Your antinatalist position just steamrolls over all of that, saying all of these lives are yeah, on balance, not worth living. Yeah, blocks the move from world A to world B. Uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that the the addition of further people uh, would be uh, would be warranted. Again, I'm coming at this from a very different angle, and I've always thought that Parfit's paradoxes here are, are somewhat analogous to Zeno's paradoxes, where they they seem compelling on their own terms, but then there's undoubtedly some way of thinking about them that reveals that they're just they're not compelling at all. I mean Zeno's, you know, classic paradox of if you you, know, you shoot an arrow at a target, it first must go halfway and then go another half of the way and then another half of the way and then you know on that analysis it never gets there. And then, you know, some developments in mathematics, some in an infinite series have, has proved that you you need not be constrained by the way Zeno was thinking about these things. And I've always hoped that something similar could happen with Parfit. I guess one move I make on my own terms here is that perhaps the, the repugnant conclusion isn't that repugnant because the lives that are barely worth living are more or less our own. This is where you sort of cross into barely worth living. I mean, this has got to at least resonate with you a little bit, that life as we know it is where you would draw the line between worth living and not. 
there are some philosophers who've said that we are in that world Z, uh, and that they think because they're sort of optimists that when you look at uh, when you look at it that way, then you think world Z isn't as bad as uh, as it's otherwise thought to be. Um, but that doesn't bring me comfort though. Right. <laughs> it's bad enough. Right. Right. But these other population problems that Derek Buffett comes from really arise from the non-identity problem. Because if the non-identity problem can be solved, then he doesn't need to move on to the other theories that lead to the other population problems. Right. And so if you think the non-identity problem can be solved uh, in the way I'm suggesting, you don't need to move on to those other theories that yield other problems. David, it's been, uh, it has been a fascinating conversation, uh, at least for me. These are the kinds of conversations that make life just barely worth living. <laughs> so, so thank you for that. Is there anything else you think we should touch to tie this up, or um, did we run through every? every There's so area many here? things, but I think we've we've had a good discussion about some issues, and it's probably better to leave it at that than just to touch very briefly on some others. So, I just want to thank you for your interest and for your uh, very thoughtful engagement. Yeah. Where should we point people to your presence online? Do you have, uh, do you do social media? Or I know, as you said, no, you're cagey about your, your personal life. I don't do any of that. No, I suppose I would refer people to, uh, to the books that I've written if they want to probe these matters in more detail. Yeah. Uh, so the one book is Better Never to Have Been. And then uh, more recently, I've published a book just this year called uh, The Human Predicament. And those two cover many of the things we've been speaking about this evening and more. Great, great. Well, I will put links to both those books on my blog where I embed this podcast. And um, thanks again for your time, David. Thank you very much.